This is the Global Research News Hour in the Summer, funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. We also acknowledge the unjust actions committed against these and other Indigenous people by the settlers who benefited from colonizing their land and waters and subjected them to broken promises, colonialization, and genocide, and desire to pay reparations in a respectful and meaningful way. This week, we are replaying some of the speeches from the Global Network's 31st Annual General Meeting from the morning of July 15, 2023. Global Network was created in 1992 to stop the arms race from moving into space. Bruce Gagnon was previously working with the Florida Justice for Peace and then and Justice and then became the coordinator of what became a national and international organization to educate people about the space arms race getting bigger all of the time and about mobilizing action in opposition. This talk featured a number of different speakers mentioning in particular the increasing war trajectory we have been on over the past year. Global Network has graciously allowed the speeches to be broadcast by Global Research NewsHour to a broader audience. Our first speaker was Dave Webb. He is the chairperson of the Global Network and was based in the United Kingdom. His topic was an overview of the general situation of the militarization and weaponization of space. Let's listen. Militarization and weaponization of space has been going on since the dawn of the space age, but it has recently become very dangerous and extremely worrying. The race for space has always been about missiles, political prestige and achieving military control of the skies. Its origins were in the Cold War nuclear arms race between the Soviet Union and the United States and both sides were aided by German scientists and missile technology taken from Adolf Hitler's missile programme at the end of World War II. This will be a very brief outline of the space warfighting developments by the United States and examples of how the war in Ukraine is being used to test and improve space warfighting systems. It's mainly focused on the US because that's where we get most information, but also because the US is a major force driving others on to their own developments. Similar things will be happening in China, Russia, India and elsewhere. Space became the ultimate military high ground in the 1991 Iraq war and became increasingly important in subsequent wars. Then, in 1997, US Space Command released its Vision for 2020, which describes the goal of the US as being to achieve full-spectrum dominance, military superiority on land, at sea, in the air, in space, and of information. And in 2019, Donald Trump authorised the US Space Force, saying, 
There is going to be a lot of things happening in space, because space is the world's newest warfighting domain. And Secretary of Defence Mark Esper added, Maintaining American dominance in that domain is now the mission of the United States Space Force. In response, President Putin said that Russia needed to develop its own space forces further and made it clear that US expansion in space posed a threat to Russian interests. The US military is continually warning of the threats posed by Chinese and Russian ambitions in space, but they forget to mention their own desire to maintain dominance there. And maintaining military dominance does not come cheap. Government spending on space is increasing, and the US government is spending far more than anyone else. The Space Force budgetary requests for 2024 is $30.3 billion. This would be a 15% increase from the previous year and a near doubling of the budget since the first one, four years ago. In 2020, Space Force announced a new command structure consisting of three commands, Space Operations Command, Space Systems Command and Space Training and Readiness Command, under which there are units called Deltas and Garrisons. The Deltas are responsible for specific operations and Garrisons are responsible for providing support functions to Deltas. The first 11 Deltas are assigned to Space Operations Command, with tasks as shown here training, space domain awareness, electronic warfare, missile warning, command and control, cyberspace operations, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, satellite communications and navigation warfare, orbital warfare and the two Buckley and Peterson Schriever garrisons. It's worth looking at what some of these activities are. The aim of dominating and controlling space requires an ability to monitor everything that goes on there. This is known as Space Domain Awareness and is the role of Space Delta II. Data is collected from a variety of space sensors and ground-based telescopes and radars and is combined with intelligence sources to produce a picture of the space environment. It enables the military to monitor the activities of others in space and can provide data for targeting of anti-satellite systems. The Farlingdale's large phased array radar near me in the UK is a 1989-1992 Raytheon upgrade of a system originally built by RCA in 1962. It's also a part of the US Ballistic Missile Warning System, which comes under Space Delta IV. An officer of Space Delta IV is present on the base to advise on operational issues. Space Force's Space Fence is a second-generation space surveillance system located at Kwajalein Atoll in the Marshall Islands. Built by Lockheed Martin at a cost of $1.6 billion, it became operational in March 2020. The Space Surveillance Network tracks about 26,000 objects. And according to a news release, the addition of the space fence will increase the catalogue size significantly over time. A new addition to the Space Surveillance Network will be the Deep Space Advanced Radar Capability, or DARK. In February 2022, Space Force awarded Northrop Grumman 
a $341 million contract to build the first dark radar, and the whole system will consist of three bases located in Texas, Australia and Britain, which will be able to detect an object the size of a football up to 36,000 kilometres away. The radar will be able to detect, track, identify and characterise objects in geosynchronous orbit, where a lot of military surveillance and communication satellites are stationed. The development of hypersonic missiles, whose speed and manoeuvrability make them very difficult to detect and intercept, has been a recent focus. The US and China have already conducted several tests and Russia has claimed it has used hypersonic missiles in Ukraine. There are two major types. The hypersonic glide vehicle, which leaves the Earth's atmosphere and then plunges back into it, and the hypersonic cruise missile, which, while not, it, not as fast, flies low and at extremely high speeds, giving opponents little time to react. So the US Missile Defense Agency is developing a constellation of hypersonic and ballistic tracking space sensor satellites to detect and intercept hypersonics as part of the next generation overhead persistent infrared satellite system. Missiles will be tracked along the satellite constellation and information passed to the satellites equipped with more advanced sensors can then provide targeting data for interceptors. L3 Harris Technologies has completed the final major design stage of the on-orbit prototype demonstration system and has already begun building the demonstration satellite. Space Force's Space War Fighting Analysis Centre is responsible for conducting analysis, modelling and wargaming and also investigating the design of missile warning, tracking and event systems. Space Delta III is responsible for space electronic warfare. In March 2020, Space Force received its first space weapon, a ground-based satellite communications radio frequency jamming system. Disrupting satellite signals can affect the ability of the military to communicate, to command and control distributed systems, and to identify and home in on targets. Space Force will be ordering 30 of these portable upgraded systems to combat Chinese and Russian space-based technology. L3 Harris received a $125 million contract for the upgrade, which could be ready in 2024. Delta-6 is developing cyber warfare techniques and support for military satellites, and a new space-end crypto unit to help protect the network from cyber attacks, jamming and other electromagnetic interference. Northrop Grumman will work on with Aeronix to build the prototype system. And Space Force also has a unit called Delta 9, established in July 2020, which is developing the secretive Boeing X-37B military space plane. There is also a unit called Space Delta 18, which acts as the National Space Intelligence Centre to provide intelligence on threats, intentions and activities in space. It's working to establish a national test and training complex to create accurate digital training environments for space wargaming. Currently, 
Space Force does not have an interest in activities beyond the Earth's orbit. However, this may change, and others are already looking at the possibilities of using nuclear energy to power deep space missions, bases on the Moon and on Mars, and the mining of planetary bodies. And aerospace corporations, the nuclear industry and Space Force are looking at nuclear-powered satellites as a way of either dodging space weapons or perhaps powering them. Recently, the war in Ukraine has drawn attention to the use of commercial satellites to track troop movements and monitor the impact of attacks. The US, UK and others have pumped billions of dollars worth of arms and equipment into the Ukrainian army to keep the war going, and arms companies are filling their pockets. Last year, Ukrainian Defence Minister Alexei Reznikov openly offered Ukraine as a venue to test NATO weapons against Russia and as a testing ground for a US war with China. General John W. Raymond, head of space operations at US Space Force, has said that the aerospace industry has helped Kiev each and every day. Satellites, drones, artificial intelligence and cyber capabilities have been central to the war since the start, and NATO has launched a 1 billion euros investment fund for innovation to, a quote, help bring to life those nascent technologies that have the power to transform our security in the decades, decades to come, end quote. And of course, Space Force has its own initiatives. Classified and commercial US satellites have provided Ukraine with intelligence on Russian troop movements, and SpaceX has delivered 15,000 Starlink satellite internet kits to Ukraine to enable citizens' internet access. However, it's also been used to target Russian positions with drones, which was breaking policies set out by SpaceX. Last February, SpaceX president Gwyn Shotwell explained that Starlink technology was never meant to be weaponized and confirmed that while it was okay for the Ukrainian military to deploy Starlink technology for communications, the intent was never to have them use it for offensive purposes. She said the company had taken steps to limit the abilities of the Ukrainian armed forces to use Starlink in an offensive way, without giving any further details. Meanwhile, Russia has also claimed that its Tirada 2 system has found ways to disable ground-to-satellite connections as used by Starlink. Cyber attacks and signal jamming have been common activities in Ukraine, as have the development of countermeasures. The war has increased the use of drones, rockets and electronic warfare in the battlefield. A small drone fitted with modern digital optics and a secure data link can give even the smallest combat unit a view of the battlefield and the ability to see ahead a mile or so behind enemy lines. The war in Ukraine has also been used to put missile defence back on the agenda. As previously mentioned, Russia has claimed it has successfully deployed hypersonic missiles in Ukraine and the US has started to develop satellite networks as a defence. But why is all this particularly worrying now? Well, in May, Brigadier General Jesse Morehouse at US Space Command said that the Russian aggression and Chinese vision to become the dominant space power 
by mid-century had left the US with no choice but to prepare for orbital skirmishes. Morehouse said, if someone was to threaten the United States of America or any of our interests, we're ready to fight tonight. He added, we have a variety of capabilities we can bring to bear and will continue to develop capabilities that allow us to maintain a credible deterrence posture. So there is a real need for a halt to the space arms race. International cooperation and agreements must be achieved soon to prevent further damage to the Earth and the space environment. However, neither the spirit nor the letter of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty is being taken seriously and space exploration has given way to exploitation. We urgently need new, up-to-date agreements. A UN open-ended working group on reducing space threats through norms, rules and principles of responsible behaviours was convened in February 2022 and the first and second sessions were held in Geneva the same year, with the third taking place last January. But not a lot of real progress has been made. Will it take too long to be meaningful? In the meantime, huge steps are being taken too quickly to further militarise and weaponise space. The international community must engage now to ensure strategies are adopted to create a sustainable future on Earth and in space. If you have been, thanks for listening. That was Dave Webb, chairperson of the Global Network, speaking on the state of the space arms race in the present time. Korean-American Joyun Ri is a member of New York-based Noditol, a Korean community development organization and a board member of the Korean Policy Institute. Her topic was the expansion of the U.S.-NATO expansion into the Asia-Pacific. NATO was created in uh, 1949 with the purpose of collective defense and what's called the collective security against the threat from the Soviet Union. As you, we all know that NATO is a military alliance and the military alliance alleges an enemy uh, or the war or a military conflicts with that enemy, the enemy being at the time, the Soviet Union and its bloc. Military alliance accordingly cannot be peacekeeping mechanism. It is a military machinery and in that sense, we can see how absurd when the NATO has transformed its main role in collective security to include what's now called humanitarian interventions. This humanitarian phrase is an excuse and justification for NATO military interventions and its intrusion in on state sovereignty. Yes, the US and NATO propagandize their, uh, that their actions are humanitarian, peacekeeping, and protecting freedom. But we do see that it's always involving imperialist world order, Western dominance, capitalism, and US economic hegemony. Probably Kishida in Japan and Yoon in Korea would not even believe that rhetoric anymore. Recently, <clears throat> there was a lot of buzz about NATO's East World expansion into East Asia since the pivot to Asia started under 
Obama administration. Since it is a military alliance, it requires an enemy. This is where China comes in, in East Asia. Without an enemy and impending threats, a strong military alliance would not be sustained. As you saw how the US sometimes downplays North Korean technologies and its missile capabilities, um, and sometimes much exaggerates in accordance with its own circumstances and interest. The threat of the enemy varies and fluctuates as well. So um, the true security cannot be obtained or sustained by alliances. In South Korea and Japan's case, military alliances have inevitably been complicated by subjugation into world economy, dependent and unfair trades and political corruption. NATO is more than a military alliance and it is an imperialist advancement in multiple world system. China has been um, the targeting in the very most recent uh, NATO summit and Japan has been invited as a, the closest partner. And um, that has been covered also in Japan and Korea as an achievement of the government, of course. Um, yet it's not that a rosy picture that the government can only draw. Uh, draw. So it is not surprising that US is trying to bring in Japan and South Korea into NATO. Japan has long been a US ally. The war in Ukraine has taken so many casualties and losses. I am not certain how much we can trust the numbers from all of the sensationalized public media. However, this number is still devastating. In the US, many US people are not really keeping up with the war in Ukraine. People in the US are such insensitized about words somewhere else and being insulated between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. It is always a war over there, not here, as Congressman Lindsey Graham said about a possible war on the Korean Peninsula. I am sure the people in the audience would is trying to stop the military actions in Ukraine and will hopefully do something about a war in East Asia. I admit that NATO's tenuous attempt for East world expansion is no news to many of you now, but those consequences may have been maybe much more destructive and detrimental than we could imagine. And from a Korean American point of view, I want to share my reasons for these heightened concerns. The first of all, many of you would know this, but South Korea's military control sometimes, especially at wartime, is not in the hands of Koreans. It is with a US four-star general, Paul LaCamera, who is a commander of three commands, the UN command, the US ROK Combined Forces Command, and US Forces in Korea Command, United Nations Command. UNC was established on July 24, 1950, and its role is to monitor the adherence to the armistice. However, the US is not a neutral third party state. As you know, US fought against North Korea in the Korean War. Why would you put a military general of an involved party to the monitoring the armistice? The numerous violations of armistice itself has, have never became an issue as US is on the side of the violations. Combined Forces Command controls the ROK military. In order to make sure the chain of command is operational, the US and ROK military have to conduct a mili uh, multiple military exercises a year. 
because of this, you can call South Korea as a sort of deformed sovereign state. U.S. has the control over the South Korean military. The U.S. forces in Korea is the U.S. forces that stays in South Korea, which belongs to the 8th, uh, 8th Field Army and about 228,500 uh, service personnel. By the way, about 53,800 U.S. troops are stationed in Japan. So if you look at this Al Jazeera chart, which has the data from the 2020, you can see that U.S. has about 750 bases in at least 50, uh, 80 countries. Almost half of the overseas troops are concentrated in ROK and Japan. ROK has the sixth world largest uh, military. And the first is China. If you consider, if we consider this dense population in East Asia, it can be estimated the number of casualties if a war occurs will be the highest ever. At the same time, nuclear threats and military tensions are increasingly escalated as the territorial disputes in the South China Sea have been intensified. This pumped up tension is in and of itself a strong show off against not only China, but also North Korea. Most recently, two days ago, USFK webpage issued a please, I mean, USFK issued a press release about the US strategic, strategic bombers are in South Korean territory. It is not only July, uh, three days ago, but also in March, April, June, US conducted a joint military exercises with uh, involving the B-52H bombers with the South, uh, South Korean Army. I mean, South Korean uh, Air Forces. Not only the space, but also in the sea, the nuclear capable machineries are coming back to South Korean water since uh, first time in since 18, 1980s. What is alarming in this region is the nuclear race is real and palpable. There has been already a warning about July 9, 2023 from the North and the North Korea conducted another in, uh, ICBM missile launch. And then South Korea has declared that it's going to, um, it's a plan called the Project 425, which is involving the reconnaissance uh, satellite race among that. So this is, this is race in the space and this involving with the satellites, surveillance and spy uh, satellites are real. And it, it's, it's going to be rampant in between the Japan, North Korea and China and South Korea. It's the area is highly vol volatile right now at this point. I would say that NATO expansion in East Asia is not proceeding without much uh, resistance from people. The UN administration may appear to be eager to stand along with the US agenda, but peace activists, um, workers, and unification activists are protesting in the UN administration's feeble attempt to willingly and meekly go along with the US demands and agenda. The UN administration's approval rating is going down even further at this point, 
and many are doing their best to stop ROK, the Republic of Korea administration, to join the NATO. With the NATO's eastwards expansion, and the U.S.'s continued hegemony, we have no peace and we have no hope in the region. In that sense, global network against the weapons and nuclear power in space. And its activities are really important and relevant. I also think that people in the U.S., it's our, our responsibility to stop our own government to cause so much death and harm all around the world. We are one in our own struggle and we hope to continue and win. Thank you. That was Joyen Rhee speaking on U.S.-NATO expansion into the Asia-Pacific. Our next guest is Christian Sorensen. He is a researcher and independent journalist, a U.S. Air Force veteran, and author of Understanding the War Industry. His topic was understanding how corporations formed the backbone of space militarization. Just a reminder, you're listening to the threat of increasing militarization and weaponization of space presented during the Global Network's 31st Annual General Meeting on the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced at CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. Our programs are broadcast on affiliated radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for downloading or streaming at globalresearch.ca. My name is Michael Welch. Here now is Christian Sorensen. Overview. There are ground radar, keep an eye on space. There are launch sites where the launch vehicles featuring rockets and the payloads on the rockets are launched. And there are satellites. These satellites are used for espionage, communications, and targeting. As Dave talked about, Space Force has bases all over the country. These are the main ones, focused around California, Colorado, New England, and Florida. Two corporations are foundational to this whole militarization of space, the Aerospace Corporation and LinQuest. Aerospace Corporation runs the FFRDC, the Federally Funded Research and Development Center that is focused on space, and that's at Los Angeles Air Force Base. LinQuest sells all kinds of stuff to Space Force and to the US Air Force, advisory and assistance, research, development, engineering. It is owned by private equity, as are increasingly more and more war corporations. So Aerospace Corporation and LinkQuest. Ground radar. The military positions ground radar around the world to keep an eye on satellites, space debris, space trash, and trajectory of missiles that are launched. Our missiles and enemy missiles. Corporations run these radar, these radar sites. Right now, uh, they include Indyne and STS, among others, Serco, which is a British corporation. But because of the nature of contracting, corporations can bid on running these sites. And so for example, in the past, BAE Systems, based in London, uh, with many sites in uh, production facilities in the US, has run these radar. Launch ranges. In general, there's the Western Range and Eastern Range. Western Range focused around Vandenberg Space Force Station in California. 
Eastern Range focused around the east coast of Florida, Cape Canaveral, Patrick Space Force Base. Launch vehicles. In general, United Launch Alliance and SpaceX are the ones launching the payloads. United Launch Alliance is comprised of Boeing and Lockheed Martin. It's a joint venture. SpaceX, you know. Aerojet Rocketdyne supplies some of the rockets that go onto this stuff as well. And Aerojet Rocketdyne was just, uh, is in the process of being purchased by L3 Harris, I believe. L3 Harris is probably the number six top US-based war corporation. I'm getting, can everybody mute themselves? By the way, I'm getting some, uh, some feedback here. Thanks. Satellites. Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and Northrop Grumman make most of the uh, satellites that are focused on targeting, on military communications, and on espionage. Okay. L3 Harris and Raytheon create a lot of the goods and services that go on these satellites, particularly anything that has to do with uh, imagery, imaging. GPS is a weapon. We know it because the US government has um, uh, done a good job in terms of PR, public relations, positioning this GPS as a convenient tool for navigation, and that it is. However, its primary purpose is to guide ordnance onto targets. Okay. So for example, a Lockheed Martin Hellfire missile made in Orlando, Florida, right outside of Universal Studios, or a General Dynamics bomb made in Garland, Texas, fitted with a Boeing JDAM kit made in St. Louis, Missouri. This ordinance is released by a drone, typically General Atomics, Reaper made in Poway, California, or a piloted aircraft made by Boeing or Lockheed Martin. This ordinance is guided on target by Lockheed Martin GPS satellite, which was launched by United Launch Alliance, that's Boeing and Lockheed Martin, as we know, or launched by SpaceX. Supported by corporate contractors up the wazoo, they're sitting over at Lock, uh, uh, Los Angeles Air Force Base. As Dave alluded to or talked about, the counter communication system, this is an L3 Harris product. Shuts down another country's satellite connection, basically jams the satellite. It is marketed as being temporary and reversible. It is a weapon of war. There are 16 currently in service. The US military has ordered many more and they're positioned around the world in order to wage warfare against other countries' space infrastructure. L3 Harris product. Beware of euphemism. Corporations and the US military will say, oh, we're just engaging stakeholders. No, this is capitalists networking with capitalists. They are the 1%. They don't care about you. They don't care about the working class, let alone the poor. They'll say, oh, it's a solution. Ah, we here at War Corporation sell solutions to government. No, it is a product of war or a product of espionage. And it's used against you, the workers of the world. They'll say it's a surgical strike. That's surgical. Surgical strike. No, it is a missile attack or it is a bombing and it kills people. They'll say their new favorite is kinetic. That's kinetic. Kinetic. No, you are killing people or you're blowing up infrastructure. 
We, the people, must avoid these terms. We must call them out. And these terms are numerous. This is just a taste. We must call them out and avoid using them. How might a healthy society use this space infrastructure? Well, we have a climate crisis going on, as well as the sixth mass extinction, according to scientists. Now, maybe we'll use these satellites in the industrial capacity for National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, monitor weather and climate, or NASA exploring the cosmos, okay? Or the civilian ground facilities, tracking space junk. It's getting awfully crowded up there. Or for planetary defense. We know, scientists tell us, that asteroids, large and small, come in our way, and there are near misses that happen all the time. It would be wise for us as a species to put some effort into this instead of the militarization of space. Thank you for your time. Look forward to your questions down the road. That was independent journalist Christian Sorensen. Next, we have Lisa Savage. She is a retired educator, organizer, and past candidate for the U.S. Senate in 2020. Her blog site is wenttothebridge.substack.com. Here she is speaking on declining empire chases fading dream of full-spectrum dominance. Full-spectrum is a mostly positive-sounding phrase that implies, you know, rainbows and all the colors and the full light spectrum, whereas dominance is obviously a very uh, militarized, very violent kind of word. Um, It's deliciously ironic in the year 2023 uh, because, of course, the U.S., who has conceived of full-spectrum dominance, is slipping further from it with every second these days. Um, In some ways, full-spectrum dominance reflects the tendency of the U.S. to treat allies like vassals, Um, a strategy in part supported by educating ambitious young people in the U.S., versus the universities, fellowships, and the like. We've seen a lot of this in the European so-called leadership uh, during the Ukraine war, the present phase. Um, We also, I think, the exploitation of indigenous people's homelands and uh, around the globe is a precursor, a ramp up to full spectrum dominance. Uh, This country, the United States, was founded on such exploitation Um, The ascendance of finance over manufacturing or farming and the commodification of what were formerly commons that supported life, I also see as full-spectrum dominance enablers. And obviously, our 800-plus military bases outside the U.S. are major uh, projects of full-spectrum dominance, the petrodollar quickly fading from the scene, also a big part. Um, Just as we were starting this conference, I saw that Edward Snowden tweeted something interesting. He He said, achieving totalitarian control by invisibly exploiting the public's dependence on essential technologies. And then he has dash dash tactalitarianism. So that's an interesting uh, coinage that maybe is um, also part of what we think of when we talk about full-spectrum dominance. Um, The Pentagon stated policy from 1997 onward about full-spectrum dominance, in my mind, was 
uh, military. That when I first you know heard it, I conceived of it as military. In, in 2015, this infographic showed what they were uh, not had already achieved, but were trying to achieve. By the time Space Force was created during the uh, Trump administration, their motto, Sempra Supra, always above, clearly has uh, overtones of the full spectrum dominance idea. I'm going to argue that uh, to zoom forward to now, um, the information realm is increasingly important in full spectrum dominance. Uh, here I'm showing a recent news report from Politico, which is considered a very Democratic Party aligned um, beltway, Washington, D.C. beltway. And it's a part about um, how Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, saying, well, we're sending cluster munitions, not because we want to, but it's kind of all we have left on the shelves right now, which is a pretty weird admission. But the reason that I'm sharing this is that I wanted to point out that this publication, the National Security Daily by Politico, is sponsored by Lockheed Martin, which makes untold uh, millions and billions off of the U.S. taxpayer funding such things. And if you read their little sponsorship message, they clearly see this as going beyond conventional military hardware, uh, but they will be um, you know, connecting, in other words, working in the information and cyberspace realms to help their customers stay ahead of emerging threats. We all know what those euphemisms are about. I also see the recent Twitter files um, <clears throat> as part of uh, the evidence for full spectrum dominance because uh, what has been revealed so far is that government officials constantly pressured Twitter managers to censor unwelcome views, even if those views were factually correct. Um, some of it was in the health realm about uh, vaccines, but uh, it very often is has been used recently in narrative control about the Ukraine war. And so even things that are truthful and correct there is evidence internally that Twitter hears from many, many government agencies. So my tax dollars are paying some government um, employees to contact social media platforms such as Twitter and say, we don't like that Bruce Gagnon. We don't like what he's saying. We want you to um, you know, use the algorithm to bump him down. So you don't really have to cancel Bruce's account. You just make sure that not very many people see it. Um, you know, this is the 21st century version of censorship that we're seeing. Um, you're probably aware, uh, may be aware that a judge recently ruled like, you got to stop doing that. That is not okay. You cannot work with social media companies and tell them what First Amendment rights shall be permitted by uh, the U.S. public. During the recent unrest in France, the government turned off the internet for a little while, um, because they didn't, you know, they wanted to control the flow of information. So uh, certainly this is an ongoing struggle and Twitter is not the only social media platform doing this, um, but it's a good example thereof. We have uh, here the um, uh, violent war walrus, John Bolton, with sort of the quintessential uh, full spectrum dominance mindset, I think. And um, one of the things that uh, I noticed while I was preparing for this is Diana Johnstone wrote an article 
um, some years ago, but she quoted from the meeting at the end of World War II after uh, the, the atomic bombs have been dropped on Japan, where <clears throat> Harry Truman, the president at the time, basically said, now we can get away with anything. So I think the mindset of your John Baltons and uh, you know, Pentagon thinkers is we have the ultimate weapon, nuclear weapons, and we've shown we're not afraid to use them. So everybody else, you know, get back. Um, of course, again, in the 21st century, many other nations have nuclear weapons and, and uh, possibly more effective and uh, harder to defend against than the U.S. But the U.S. is not going to give up this hubristic point of view easily. Um, I think that a few deranged individuals want to push full spectrum dominance all the way to the US using nuclear weapons. And um, we can agitate against it. I, I always pray that the uh, you know hackers and computer specialists far smarter than I am are working hard on jamming up the ability to use these very communications based and you know interconnected systems. Um, I'm gonna show you, this is, this is one graphic that says full spectrum dominance. Um, many of us mentioned about the um, jamming devices, so I won't dwell on this, but uh, note that it's two years behind schedule. So the Pentagon likes to beat its chest and act real, you know, we dominate everything, but they actually have a bad model, I think, using capitalism to build the kind of things they need is really not as effective as a, a sort of coordinated um, self-defense programs such as Russia or China seem to have for developing state-of-the-art uh, tools that they need. Um, we've recently seen reports that Russian hackers got into the Ukrainian, um, you know, uh, conscription database and messed with it. So that's also an interesting approach. Um, and we also saw, we, you know, see back and forth, oh, Russian military is offline because they've been hacked. Um, <clears throat> so it's ongoing. Uh, this slide uh, to me shows that it's the hegemon is it, days are done and it's a new world with multipolar, um, you know, representation of many nations coming together to cooperate and collaborate and having one uh, imperial power that vassalizes anybody that wants to be on their team is that ship has sailed whether the US will recognize it or admit it is another question, but you know that's kind of where we are right now. Um, this slide is from a children's book that I read to my grandson last night. It was published in 2011. It's uh, uh, published by Scholastic, a big corporate um, American school, you know, pre-K through probably eighth grade um, publisher. This is how they depict uh, without spiders, insects could take over the world is an insect sitting in front of the seal of the president of the United States flanked by two flags. So this kind of soft propaganda starts early and often. I could do an hour on just this publishing corporation and their propaganda efforts on, you know, this is like a little kid book, preschool uh, book. But that's the way that full spectrum dominance works as you get into every sector you can in as many ways as you can. As we all know, uh, BRICS is really on the rise as an economic alternative to uh, being a U.S. vassal with 42% of the world's population. That's right now before they admit the many, many nations that have applied to be part of this uh, economic cooperative. So I think, you know, this, the 
history has shifted away from full spectrum dominance. It never was more than a pipe dream. It's increasingly um, fantastic than anyone could believe it's still possible. But <clears throat> here we are. Uh, we who organize, I think, know our place in the global order, and that is to communicate with each other, listen, um, work together, collaborate, and cooperate rather than trying to dominate. So it's all hands on deck, and I'm, I'm proud to be with you all. Thank you. That was Lisa Savage. Finally, we have a Canadian presenter. Tamara Lawrence is PhD candidate in global governance at the Balsillie School for International Affairs at Wilfrid Laurier University. She is a member of the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace and serves on the board of the GN. The topic was how NATO, national intelligence services, and universities coordinate and weaponize information. Western governments use the media to control information about their wars to maintain public support. This is not new. We have known for decades that the U.S. government and the Central Intelligence Agency have been able to control news outlets and journalists domestically and internationally. Through the revelations of the Church Committee hearings in the late 1970s and the exposure of the CIA's Operation Mockingbird, and then later, through the CIA's National Endowment for Democracy, funding journalists worldwide from the 1980s to today. In their 1988 book, Manufacturing Consent, The Political Economy of Mass Media, Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky wrote, in a world of concentrated wealth and major conflicts of class interest, to fulfill this role requires systematic propaganda. Herman and Chomsky were dealing with conventional media, television, radio, and print, but mass media has evolved, as you all know, with the emergence of social media 20 years ago. In 2004, Facebook came out, then in 2006, there was YouTube, Twitter, and WikiLeaks, and in 2010, Instagram. People started to use these platforms to share their stories and read alternative information not available in conventional media spaces. There was, uh, this was a big problem, uh, of course, for Western governments. They lost their ability to control the narrative and shape public opinion. So they looked for ways to manage content on social media. Over the past decade, Western governments with their national intelligence services in coordination with NATO and pro-NATO think tanks and academics have been coordinating to control and censor information in a really insidious way. It was fully deployed uh, for this NATO war in Ukraine. Chomsky recently called the propaganda system today to be unprecedented in his lifetime, and that's over 90 years. American journalists Matt Taibbi and Michael Schallenberger call it the censorship industrial complex. Uh, Last November, after Elon Musk bought Twitter, he opened up the company's records to Taibbi and Schellenberger. They found that the CIA, the Department of Homeland Security, and the FBI had infiltrated Twitter and other social media companies and have been managing their content. On March 9th of this year, Taibbi and Schellenberger were invited to testify at a congressional hearing on the weaponization of the federal government. In their testimony, the journalists explained that uh, in their uh, Twitter files reporting, um, how it revealed that the US uh, intelligence and security agencies had press pressured social media companies to kick people off their platforms, to amplify some accounts that were friendly to the government 
and to de-amplify other accounts that were critical. In his testimony, Schallenberger stated, the Stanford Internet Observatory, the University of Washington, the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab and Graphica have all inadequately dis disclosed their ties to the Department of Defense, the CIA and other intelligence service services. They work with multiple US government agencies to institutionalize censorship research and advocacy within dozens of other universities and think tanks. Through the Twitter files, Taibbi also identified the role of the US State Department's Global Engagement Center as a key driver of the censorship industrial complex. The GEC was started by the Obama administration in 2011. The GEC was established within the Department of, of State and its mission is to recognize and counter foreign state and non-state propaganda and disinformation efforts aimed at undermining or influencing the policy, security, or stability of the United States, its allies and partner nations. The GEC is the central node of the censorship industrial complex and this information war. And this whole disinformation project was a topic of discussion at the NATO summit in Vilnius last week. I didn't understand the extent and problem of the censorship industrial complex until this spring and let me tell you what happened to me in Canada. In March of this year, a report came out in Canada called, quote, the enemy of my enemy, Russian weaponization of Canada's far right and far left to undermine support to Ukraine. It was jointly done by the University of Regina, the University of Toronto's Digital Public Square and the University of Maryland. This report claims that Russian bots are spreading disinformation and targeting Canadians on Twitter. It's important to understand what disinformation means. It is defined as verifiably false or misleading information that is created, presented and disseminated to intentionally deceive the public and may cause harm. It is a threat to democracy and security. In this report, the authors say that Russia is using Twitter to promote these false narratives, disinformation in Canada, and this is being circulated by other Canadians on social media. Examples of the these disinformation claims are, NATO is responsible for the war, Ukraine is corrupt, oopsie, Ukraine is corrupt and doesn't deserve our support. If Canadians want to cooperate with Russia on climate and Arctic issues, then we, we must return to democracy. Yet we all know that there is some truth to these claims. NATO does share responsibility for this tragic war in Ukraine. This enemy of my enemy report got, got widely circulated in the media in Canada and even in the United States. And it was a feature story in the New York Times. But this coverage failed to point out that the main funders for this report were Canada's Department of National Defense and the US Department of Defense's Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. As well, one of the co-authors of the report, Marcus Kolga, set up a program called DisinfoWatch in Ottawa. And this is funded by the US Embassy in Canada, NATO Strategic Communications, and the US Global Engagement Center. The following month in April, at my affiliated university, the University of Waterloo, 
there was a conference that was held called the Weaponization of Disinformation in Canada. And this conference was attended by academics across the country, government officials, CSIS, and representatives of think tanks, including Marcus Kolga. At the conference, there was no debate about the issues, just presentations about how Russia, China, and Iran were spreading disinformation on social media. I found it shocking that academics were making decisions about what is and is not false information without doing any robust research or having any open debate. There was also no critical inquiry. After this conference, I became really worried and I started to investigate further. I discovered that in 2019, Canada's Central uh, Security, uh, Canada's Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, established an academic outreach and stakeholder engagement program. CSIS is the Canadian equivalent to the US CIA, and it is the Canadian connection to the Five Eyes Alliance with the US, UK, Australia, and New Zealand. Over the past 10 years, CSIS has been holding these workshops with academics on different topics. In 2018, CSIS held a workshop, Who Said What? The Security Challenges of Modern Disinformation. Most of the topics uh, were related to Russia, China, and Iran. However, CSIS does not reveal the names of the professors who have been attending these workshops. Through this program, CSIS has been trying to influence academic discourse, and in my opinion, this largely explains why there has been a strange silencing at Canadian universities about this war in Ukraine, and why few professors are challenging Canada's and NATO's role in this war, and why they are not speaking out publicly and calling for peace. This disinformation project in Canada and American universities is part of the censorship industrial complex. Without research or critical debate, they are illegitimately determining what is acceptable information and they are complicit in this information war. Western universities have built, Western governments have built a well-coordinated international network to control public discourse on social media and the universities to maintain their support and to su support for their wars and to suppress dissent. Finally, Taibbi and Schellenberger are calling for the censorship industrial complex to be dismantled. I believe it begins with exposing it, having the courage to call it out, use social media, be on the streets and spread our information about the threat that NATO poses to promote peace, to end this war in Ukraine and to cooperate with Russia, China and Iran. On the Global Research News Hour, we heard a panel discussion on Global Network's 31st Annual General Meeting on the 15th of July, 2023, the focus on plans around the militarization and weaponization of space and the growing space weapons war. The show is the Global Research News Hour, funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional territory of Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the Heart Métis Nation homeland. Music was the song Shifting Sands from the Purple Planet Music, and available at the website purple-planet.com. My name is Michael Welch. Please join us again next week for more special programming.